0: Welcome to the 234th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Here's a pop quiz. What's the most modified major ecosystem in North America? It turns out it's the tall grass prairie that used to blanket as much as 85% of states like Iowa. Since the first plows peeled back the prairie pelt back in the 1800s, that diverse biome has been pretty much replaced by annual plantings of corn and soybeans. With the exception of a few remnant prairie areas, gone is a system that consisted of hundreds of species of perennial plants, which sent their roots several feet into the ground, building organic matter, managing moisture, and sequestering carbon with the prairie also went prime habitat for wildlife and pollinators. Most of the few acres of prairie still hanging around exist on public lands such as wildlife refuges or in preserves owned by groups like the Nature Conservancy. But as the multiple benefits of having perennial plant systems on land become more evident, individual landowners are showing an increased interest in restoring native prairie. It's becoming clear that a little prairie can go a long ways toward promoting ecological health. Researchers at Iowa State University have shown that planting 10 to 20 percent of a row crop field to native prairie can cut erosion by an astounding 95 percent and slice fertilizer runoff by as much as 90 percent. This research initiative is called, quite appropriately, STRIPS, which stands for Science Based Trials of Row Crops Integrated with Prairie Strips. Since the initial STRIPS research results came out, several farmers across Iowa have been prompted to integrate native prairie plantings into their corn and soybean fields as a kind of capstone conservation practice. And in the past few years, I've been on farms that have found a way to rotationally graze livestock on restored prairie, proving that perennial plant systems can provide economic as well as ecological benefits. That's why the work of the Tallgrass Prairie Center is so exciting. Based at the University of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls, the center helps public agencies and private individuals restore tallgrass prairie systems, This involves conducting research and doing educational outreach, as well as propagating native seed and making it available to the public. In particular, the center has played an instrumental role in helping county and state agencies get more native prairie established along Iowa's roadsides. One of the most exciting initiatives at the center is its Prairie on Farms program, which was established in 2015. This program helps farmland owners establish native prairie, often on land that has been growing corn and soybeans for decades. Thus far, on-farm plantings have ranged in size from less than 2 acres to 10 acres. At this point, the Prairie on Farms program has established a little over 50 acres of prairie on 9 different farms. I recently had the opportunity to visit the Tallgrass Prairie Center, where I got a tour of its seed nurseries and its impressive sorting and processing facilities. While there, I chatted with the center's director, Dr. Laura Jackson, and Ashley Kittle, who coordinates the Prairie on Farms program. Jackson... Who's also a biology professor at the University of Northern Iowa provided me a succinct history of the tall grass prairie biome and the center's role in helping make native perennial plant systems part of a working land's landscape.
1: That tall grass prairie, so that the whole grassland of the mid-continental U.S. includes the tall grass, the mixed grass, and the short grass prairie. So many of us are familiar with the the high plains of, you know, western Kansas and Oklahoma and Texas and parts as, you know, all the way to the Rockies. But this part of the grassland was a tall grass prairie, and it starts in about uh, eastern Kansas, eastern Nebraska, and goes uh, all the way east into a little bit of Ohio. Mm -hmm. But if you look on a map of that former tall grass prairie, the state that was most covered with tall grass prairie was Iowa. Hmm. It was Iowa. We were about 85% prairie at the time of European invasion. And we, uh, uh, with a little bit of woodlands and savanna slash woodland and uh, wetlands. So if you, a lot of the wetlands kind of merge with prairie, wet prairie. So all told about 85% was prairie. And we're kind of on the edge of that woodland savanna boundary. As you go farther east, you, you see more of it. It was. Um, it has been in grassland since um, shortly after the glaciers left. Um, the last glacier was here just ten thousand years ago, uh, just fifty miles to the west, and the the region converted from tundra to forest for a little while, and then about I think it's like eight thousand uh, eight thousand years ago, became prairie. There was a big warm-up around five or 6,000 years ago, and that, that um, those, those uh, plants from the south and the west really pushed further and further into the eastern U.S. during that time. So we have little remnants of dry species like cacti that mm. are here because of that really uh, warm period. And then since then it's been gradually cooling off, Uh, or it had been until more recent climate change events. But uh, these grasslands here were very, very robust, big grasses in August and September. Those prairie grasses could be eight or nine feet high. Uh, Very deep, rich, black soils that just go on, seem to just go on and on and on. However far down you dig, you still find more black soil and uh, the prairie roots were sinking, you know, pretty much they would go just as far as the environment let them. If there's a water table, they'd stop, but if there wasn't, they would just keep going and going. So people talk about, oh, eight feet, 10 feet, 15 feet. I've seen things that say 15 to 20 feet. When you hear that, you know, nobody really knows. Nobody's gone and dug down that far. But when you see black soil, that's carbon from plants, uh, so wherever that soil was black, that means those plants were pumping; those roots were down there, mm-hmm. pumping carbon into the soil and creating mm-hmm. that that high organic matter. So the streams were very different. It was uh, there were many fewer incised channels. There was more of a, a sort of a wet swale type mm-hmm. of a, of a hydrology. So overland flow that was very slow to respond to rainfall. So when it rains, the water's soaking in and only gradually making its way mostly through groundwater to waterways. Yeah, because of the root systems, uh, the plants are trapping a lot of water uh, before it even reaches the the ground. That's called interception. And then the water's soaking in. And um, there's, you know, attempts to measure, like, how much water can a prairie... Uh, infiltrate you know the way you would do with a coffee can test mm-hmm. out in a cornfield and it's a lot mm-hmm. it's a, it's it's much much more than you know a crop field even one that's been tilled up the prairie streams were clear they were in by some accounts lined with little pebbles and grout you know glacial material. Um, They were not muddy. They were not uh, fast, you know, quick to respond to a rainfall. The water would just gradually rise in them and then gradually fall. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's all changed dramatically. And there were bison, there were elk, there were deer, of course, um, game birds, um, prairie chickens. um, There were migratory waterfowl, that nested here, that no longer do today, you know, uh, the shorebird type things. Um, there were wolves, bear, mountain lions, foxes, all of the top predators were here. And uh, and of course, Native Americans were here uh, doing a lot of hunting, and the jury is out on how much they were able to suppress those wildlife populations. It, it, at the time of that Europeans came into the picture and started taking notes on this, of course, a lot of those Native American populations already been decimated, and so the wildlife populations could have been unnaturally high. We don't really know. Yeah, you know, you can look at the, the, the maps created by surveyors' notes in the 1850s when they were going through creating the section lines and they show prairie, 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 except for right along the rivers and streams. And so you can look at maps and, and see, you know, where there would have been mm-hmm. um, woodlands. And it really checks out very closely to soils maps showing, uh, you know, wherever there's a woodland, you have less soil organic matter, and they track pretty, pretty mm-hmm. closely. Well, eastern Iowa was um, settled in the 1830s, and then it just kind of worked its way uh, west. Um, The oldest gravestones in our cemetery are from, I think, 1855, Hmm. so uh, maybe 1845. So 45 to 55, you would have seen people coming into the area and and farming didn't mean they tilled everything up completely at that time they had a lot of livestock but we generally um, take 1900 as our point at which all of the big prairie was gone Mm -hmm. again between 1900 and you know into the 1940s and 50s and 60s they were still utilizing prairie hay as part of their rotations so, for instance, the county to the north of us, Bramer County, in 1910, uh, I, was, I looked at the, the Iowa Yearbooks of Ag, and you can look at the statistics, and in 1910, 10% of Bramer County was in prairie hay. Mm. So that's still a lot of prairie on the landscape, utilized prairie. Yeah. And then, of course, fence rows and groves and other odd bits and pieces um, that, that now have been completely converted. So even though you'd say 1900 for the complete and total settlement, I would say that we're still losing prairies, but that in the 1950s, there was still a lot of prairie hidden Mm -hmm. in the landscape that has been lost due to uh, plowing up pastures, um, getting rid of those prairie hay meadows, and then just general intensification.
0: So, talking about the Tallgrass Prairie Center, I was talking to the other Laura, and I think she laid out to me that there's kind of four program four areas. Programs, can you yeah. Can you just give us a, a rundown of those four program sure, areas a little sure. bit?
1: We started in the road ditch. So, in <laughs> 1988...
0: As everybody does.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like a strange place to start, but 60% of Iowa's public lands are in a road ditch. Hmm. And um, in the 1980s, there were a group, uh, group of citizens that were getting tired of seeing the road, road ditches converted to brome and just blanket sprayed. They saw that as a unnecessary cost to the county. And uh, a lot of our good remnant prairies have been in road ditches mm-hmm. because those surveyors went through in the 50s, and then that became... You know that became the right of way that couldn't be farmed. So that that anything that's not a road is is still there. The Iowa legislature at that time had passed a groundwater protection act in 1988, and I don't know if it was separate legislation or part of it. They created they um, they said that it's in the public interest to maintain the roadsides. And as uh, ecologically diverse and with multiple benefits, hmm. so they set up a living roadway trust fund to support the uh, county and state efforts to manage those roadsides in a more ecological way. They set up a an office at UNI um, for to help coordinate those efforts. That was because UNI already had substantial number of people and effort involved in prairie restoration Hmm. so we we got the (laughs) we got the office here Mm -hmm. we didn't have a tallgrass prairie center at the time but that's sort of the core of our program Mm -hmm. so the it's called integrated roadside vegetation management which is a terribly long and (laughs) obnoxious name but we also call it the roadside office Mm -hmm. or prairie roadside office that's uh run by christine nemick and she we run a, an annual conference for roadside managers. Mm-hmm. We um, outreach to the counties that have roadside programs or counties that might be interested in, uh, in getting one to help them figure out what they want to do and provide support and, and guidance and so forth. And uh, a number of other activities to support and promote the adoption of a this integrated approach to, to roadside management. And so Iowa is kind of first in the nation for... This kind, of a, this kind of thoughtful, systemic approach to creating habitat in our road ditches. We have uh, people, you know, look to Iowa as kind of the leader in that because mm. we've been at it for so long. I think there's about 47 out of our 99 counties have a full-time roadside manager and a plan on file with the state to uh, manage their roadsides. And then as part of that program, we get a federal grant from the Federal Highways Administration for seed. And we buy native prairie seed, and then we distribute it to those county roadside managers. Mm. So every spring, we get a shipment of uh, about 1,300 acres worth of native prairie seed that's from Iowa Source. It's Yellow Tag Certified Iowa Genetics, they all come and pick it up in their trucks and drive back, and then they use that in their projects. In the early 90s, as that was really beginning to ramp up, there was this great need for prairie seed because at that time all you could get was switchgrass and cultivars of big blue stem and Indian grass from Nebraska and Kansas. If you wanted to buy wildflower seed, there were only four or five species available. Uh, if you wanted something really pretty like you know, prairie blazing star, the only place you could get the seed was in the Netherlands. Hmm. Uh, they were growing it as an ornamental. So um, Daryl Smith, who started this, this uh, tall grass prairie center, he um, figured out a way, working with the native seed companies and Iowa Crop Improvement Association, to develop a yellow tag program for native seed. And yellow tag means that the seed has not it is coming directly from native prairies around the state, and it hasn't been selected for artificial traits. Mm-hmm. The idea is to save the genetics, save the genetic diversity that's left in the prairie. So we would go out to—we divide the state into three horizontal lines, which you can do in Iowa because everything's <laughs> on a rectilinear mm-hmm. system. Three you know, northern, central, and southern bands— and then we collected seed, for started with grasses, and we did some legumes, and then we started doing other wildflowers. Then we got into sedges, and lately it's been woody species. And we would go out and collect seed from these remnant prairies, bring it back here, and then grow it up in our greenhouse, and then put it out on our seed production plots, figure out how to grow it like a, like a crop, which is not as easy as it sounds. And then we harvest that and clean the seed here, and that goes into our seed storage room. And then a native seed company can call us, and we will release some of that genetic material to him as foundation seed. And that foundation seed then they start with, and that's the, that's the seed that they would start their production plots with. So they're able to market that seed um, to the Department of Transportation, which requires it. Uh, they're able to market that seed as yellow tag Iowa source ID seed. And there's a third-party certification process. Iowa Crop Improvement comes and inspects our fields, inspects their fields, and and so forth. So we've worked with over 100 species of prairie plants since 1992. We've released about 85 species, and most of them in multiple ecotypes, northern, central, southern. Hmm. So about 1.25 million pounds of seed have been sold under that yellow tag um, have come through mm. the center over the years. Wow. So that's made it possible to save the seed companies a lot of money in terms of their research and development costs. Mm-hmm. They don't have to go out, you know, you might go out to a prairie saying I'm going to collect carex bebyi and the seed isn't is not ready. Well, you just driven 4 hours, now you got to drive 4 hours back, come back when 3 days from now, mm-hmm. 4 5 days from now, you know, and then by that time if you wait too long it could all be gone. Right. Um, it takes years sometimes to build up enough seed material to put it out in the production plots, and then it might take two three years for them to produce seed. So that's all. Those are all costs that the native seed company. You know it's risky, especially when they're not seeing Carex bebi on a on a bid request from the DOT. It's a big gamble to them to start growing that on some sort of speculation that it may someday be a commercially viable species. So we kind of take on that risk. Yeah. And all of that's been, been supported by this consistent support from Living Roadway Trust Fund. Mm. And and they've really had the vision to see how you know an investment of this magnitude can, can really pay off. And as a result, we have more commercially available species... For the, for the prairie ecosystem than really any other place in the country. Hmm. Okay. That's the second, our yeah. plant materials program. And,
0: then, and then yeah. the third,
1: is it research? It's, uh, yeah. yeah, research and restoration. We started in about 1998 with uh, starting to do a little bit more agronomic research and how to plant prairie. So there's all kinds of questions. What should be the right seeding rate? 20, 30, 40 seeds per square foot, what should it be? What are the impacts of seeding in different ways? Hydro seeder, drill, broadcast. What are the techniques for seeding into killed sod as opposed to bare ground? Mm -hmm. Just really, you know, very nuts and bolts questions. And the ones that we're working on hardest today have to do with seed mix design. So um, the seed mix is, you know, the recipe of how many species of each kind of grass and wildflower you're going to put in that seed mix. Seeds can be very expensive. They can run, you know, $900 a pound. Mm. Yeah, they're, the, they're, they're quite difficult to grow and there's a lot of investment. And so seed mixes are generally thought of as being, you know, there's your grasses and then there's your wildflowers. Grasses are relatively inexpensive. Wildflowers are much more expensive. And so what we found, say, with uh, just observing the plantings that were done in the early 1990s through the Conservation Reserve Program, they were three grass seeds to one wildflower seed, three to one mixture. And they started out with some wildflowers in them, but gradually over time, the grasses took over. And so now what you see is big swaths of lots of grass and very little else. So that has limited value for wildlife. It's still good for wildlife. Mm-hmm. It's great for soil conservation. It tends to be more invadable by weeds than something that's a mixture. Mm-hmm. In 2012 or so, they came out with this pollinator program, which they said, well, we'll fix that. It's going to be, three, uh, it's going to be one grass seed for every three forb seeds and they planted a lot of that 230,000 acres in Iowa alone. Mm. A lot of pollinator habitat went in. And those of us in the prairie community kind of slapped our foreheads and said, "Oh, it's going to all be Canada thistle." Because grasses perform a really important role. They 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 are easy to establish. They get the, they fill up that space, you know, keep it from being bare dirt. Mm-hmm exclude other things like thistles that would come in and so you need the grass as a matrix and we had been working uh, a a prior uh, staff member here dave williams had been planting a lot of prairies around campus that's nice because then you can you can keep a keep an Mm -hmm. eye on things year after year you can keep Mm -hmm. an eye on things and see how they're doing and you know what their management is and you know what you planted and he kept track of all his his seed mixes and he was planting a one-to-one mix of grasses and, and wildflowers. And those grasses weren't all big blue-stem switchgrass and Indian grass. They also included smaller things mm-hmm. like drop seed and sedges and cool season natives like, bro- like uh, Calms brome and uh, wild rye. When you put a diverse mix, what he discovered is when you put a diverse types of graminoids, grasses and sedges, into the mix they're not as competitive. Mm-hmm. They still do the job of holding the soil and keeping the weeds out, but they don't They don't seem to create this, you know, over dominance of grasses. And so our plantings around campus, some of that I've showed you here mm-hmm. today, are just full of wildflowers yeah. and they're 10, 15 years old. Our Current seed mix research. We started up at the um, Iowa State Research and Extension, a uh, Research and Education Farm up at Nashua, the Borlaug um, Learning Center. We started an experiment that compared those three seed mixes: the three to one grasses to forbs, the one to three forbs, uh, grasses to forbs, the pollinator mix, and then our Goldilocks mix in the middle, the one to one grass to forb mix. And we did a replicated randomized design with six, six replicates and um, also used a, had a mowing treatment in there. We just sent a paper out for review to Restoration Ecology reporting on those results. We found that that one-to-one seed mix with plenty of non-C4 grasses in it, the other types of grasses, that it's, uh, it doesn't produce as many flowers as the pollinator mix, but it does produce a lot. They're more diverse, more range of flowers blooming at different times. And they also have the benefits of soil erosion control and less, uh, less bare ground, less weeds. Mm-hmm. So we're looking, we're shooting for something that's more multifunctional instead of we just want soil erosion control or we just want pollinators. We want to try to create something that's multifunctional, that's functional as a plant community, um, it's not pushing out all these forbs that we mm-hmm. spent money on and something that um, can be cost effective. Mm-hmm. So we think that it's possible to develop seed mixes that are, are they're cost effective. They're not they're doing a lot of things. They're not wasting money on stuff that's never going to come up. and they're kind of robust plant communities over time. Mm-hmm. And because you know these are public dollars that go into conservation reserve program. Let's get a good, a good design here mm-hmm. that that does a lot of
0: things. So then your fourth area is is it uh, prairie on farms? Prairie on, farms, prairie right, on
1: farms, right? Right. Yeah. So we started um, we started in twenty fifteen on on this uh, which was to branch out from our regular constituency, which was more the roadsides. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to a certain extent, um, just private homes. And the Iowa State University has this uh, STRIPS program that they had been doing for a few years. I had caught wind of it. I had seen some examples out there of some areas where they had planted prairie and on the contour and 30-foot 30 30 wide STRIPS. And Iowa State was doing a lot of great work showing uh, the benefits of that and the, how it affected soil erosion water infiltration, nutrient loss, and wildlife habitat. But what they weren't doing was really looking at the nuts and bolts of prairie restoration implementation, Mm -hmm. the seed mix design, and uh, techniques for planting, and then post-planting management. And that's something that we'd worked a lot with and done a lot of research on. So we felt like we could make a contribution there, not step on their toes, but complement what they were doing by focusing more on that. So we started working with some farmers around here. We started on the Lewes farm in Benton County with a 90-acre field that we put nine acres of strips into. We did that in 2015, and we kind of uh, created as a demonstration site. So we used those same seed mixes that I was telling you about from the research on his farm. So you could walk down (coughs) the different strips and look at these different treatments and kind of compare them for yourself and Mr. Lewes was very uh, nice to accommodate that. So we've had several field days there, and then we have a number of other sites in our area within about 50 miles of us where we're able to get our, our planting equipment. And so we've, we got some support from uh, Leopold for, uh, Center for Sustainable Agriculture. The um, uh, New York Community Trust uh, supported uh, work with Monarch Joint Venture to do this in in minnesota and iowa and so we were the partner in iowa to work on that nrcs helped us out a little bit there at the very beginning and so we've been planting one or two sites a year holding field days and really bringing people together uh, at winter and and summer meetings sometimes on um, topics of mutual interest it might be how do we get more fire out there you know what are what are the how do we work on that it might have to do with native seed supply it might have to do with you know other um looking at the nrcs uh specifications and how can we improve things things like that so we have a what we call the ag conservation working group and get together once a year and uh, learn from one another and just exchange information and and try to basically promote or improve the capacity to plant prairie out there in the landscape through education, demonstration, and so forth.
0: As you were talking, I was struck by, because I talked to a lot of farmers and landowners who are interested in prairie for different reasons and are increasingly interested in that multifunctional aspect and aren't just interested in maybe the traditional landowner or somebody who wants to do some landscaping and are interested in having that particular plant or that particular pretty flower or or whatever, but are interested in it from a systems approach, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I get that sense that that's what you're trying to get across to folks is this idea that it is a prairie system that you're trying to promote or a biome on a much bigger scale. Is that something that you're seeing That you're really trying to promote and that you're seeing more of an interest in as far as whoever it is that's coming to you and asking either research questions or or questions about how to just the practicality of getting prairie established is that idea of this multifunctional aspect of, of kind of the multiple roles it can play on the landscape kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know, a lot of times the the people come to us from with a variety of different levels of experience working on prairie, and you know, some people are 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 asking it just from the point of view of what should I plant, mm-hmm. and uh, we we like to promote the idea of a multifunctional approach to this that you're you're trying to establish a plant community. It's not like a Amazon shopping cart. Mm-hmm. Well, I just want this, 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 and this because I like those species. You're really looking for things that play well together. Mm. And so that's, um, that's kind of a hard idea to get across. Mm-hmm. And then a, a lot of it has to do with um, what's there already, namely the weed seeds. So you really have to understand the... Prairie as not just a static thing sitting there, but more of a movie, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that you're it's starting in one place and, and ending up in another. Yeah. So it's more of that dynamic uh, process. So a, a lot of what we do has to do with just helping people gradually um, get more and more comfortable and confident in their skills and judgment about when to do things, how to do things. Um, the multifunctionality part is something that we, we think is really important and is, is a, and, and we would love for there to be more opportunities for an income stream from mm-hmm. Prairie. One of the projects that I haven't talked about was uh, something that um, was to figure out, How would you use prairie biomass for thermal energy in rural enterprises? We figured that thermal energy would be the best way to convert prairie biomass to energy because it's the most efficient. You're not losing energy through conversions. And so we uh, researched a bunch of different, um, basically, technologies to, to harvest and densify the material and then to burn it. Uh, for various applications, and we did kind of a calculator to see, well, if propane, which is the, the other alternative mm-hmm. fuel, if propane costs are so high, then here's your payback costs for, for kind of putting together this combination. And so that's an example of something we're doing to promote the idea of multifunctionality. This is going to be wild, wildlife habitat. Mm-hmm. It is going to protect your soils, and it can also be used in, uh, in, a, in a way that will help you economically. That's a little bit made difficult by current CRP rules. And almost everyone in this part of the world is only taking land out of corn production if they can get a CRP contract with a rental payment. They're, for the most part, not doing it without that rental payment. Mm-hmm. That's not true everywhere. There's places where there's more marginal ground. that There just is no no question about planting it to anything. But and this part of the tall grass prairie, it's all none of it's marginal ground unless it's getting flooded every year in a floodplain. So uh, we have to find, we'd like to find ways to make that pay. Of course, we know that there are there are benefits that are downstream of the farmer, the water quality improvements, and the reduction in flood intensity and things like this. Uh, habitat for pollinators and, and, and wildlife. But those don't necessarily come back to the landowner as an economic mm-hmm. compensation for taking that land out of production. So that's that's the, the situation we're all in, of
0: course. Because I hear this from farmers more and more. Let's say it's somebody who's interested in experimenting with cover cropping. They start out with a single species, and then they'll maybe go to multiple species because they see the benefits of a diversity uh, the same with grazing, mm-hmm. uh, maybe trying to get more native species into that pasture mix or at least get a, a mix of species in there because they see, again, the benefits of diversity. Yeah. <laughs> and that seems like that's the tall grass prairie is the poster child for diversity and the resiliency and the benefits you get from diversity. And I do even hear some farmers say, hey, I'm mimicking nature and what I'm doing here. And one of the models I'm drawing from is the prairie they're never going to have 100 species you know per mm-hmm. acre but i wonder if just getting that idea out there more and more uh, kind of almost in a way a biomimicry type of situation where mm-hmm. it's it can be a real model for yeah we're never going to be have that system completely back what the way we had it but that there's some some of those ideas that can be drawn into agriculture and working lands Type oh, yeah. landscapes.
1: Yeah, I cu- I couldn't agree more. It's really important to me to bring this idea of prairie ecosystem processes mm-hmm. to the table. Some of us who are have grown up as botanists or, or you know, just prairie freaks, we we love to see those really unusual species and the rare species and and the orchids and things like that. But I I think that we can also look at the work that farmers are doing if they have a long crop rotation with oats and hay and pasture they and and ruminant livestock. They're putting prairie back onto the landscape, prairie in the ecosystem sense, Hmm. deep-rooted perennials, grazers, uh, diversity, legumes providing the nitrogen, uh, the nitrogen cycling, and uh, putting carbon back into the soil. That is, uh, if a a bobolink lands in your pasture... That bobolink has a say as to whether that's prairie or not. I think they, they said, yes, that's a prairie in some sense, mm. right? Mm. And uh, so I believe that we have to look at this as a tall grass prairie ecosystem, not just tall grass prairie plants. And when you look at it from the ecosystem point of view, even someone putting in an annual cover crop, is at least getting more roots in the ground longer. And it's looking a little bit more like a prairie than it did mm-hmm. before that. And all of that's a good thing. And the diversity part, looking especially at the g- things growing at different times in the growing season, I think is tremendously important. There's something green on the prairie from right now in you know mid-April mm-hmm. into late October. Not a lot, but there's mm-hmm. something green. There's something growing and... Every last bit of that growing season is being utilized. All that solar energy is being utilized. And um, there's there's living roots that are metabolizing and doing things underground absolutely all the time. Uh, I don't know what they do down there in (laughs) mid-January. I don't know if it's a lot or not, (laughs) but they're down there. (laughs) And so... That's something, especially with these crazy, intense rainfalls that we're getting, nine inches of rain, 12 inches of rain uh, over a short period of time, that's just um, kind of a common sense, uh, resilience strategy to have something in the ground, however little it may be. And uh, you don't get that uh, function unless you have a lot of different things going mm-hmm. on over mm-hmm. time. Um And It's got to be, obviously, you have to be able to manage it, and and it can't be too crazy diverse. If if it's too much, then you can't manage it, and we understand that, too. Mm -hmm. But but yeah, there's a lot of benefits to looking at it as a system, looking at it as multifunctional rather than, I'm going to specialize on this here, and I'm going to specialize on that there. Mm
0: -hmm. Ashley Kittle talked to me about what prompts an owner of farmland to restore a native prairie the challenges involved, and some of the first steps toward getting such a habitat established. Do you get a sense of when pe- when somebody approaches you about uh, getting some prairie on farmland, what, what are some of the reasons that they give that, that, that they'd like to see something like that? Because it is so different than what is out there, you know, day in and day out.
2: Yeah, I wish I could tell you one of the main reasons, but every landowner seems to be different. For some, it is the cost-share benefit maybe they have an issue, particularly on their farm, maybe it's an erosion issue, but if cost share is available, that's usually enough incentive to maybe help them. Others, they maybe attend a field day or a workshop, and maybe they're already a little more conservation minded or inclined, and so they're willing to try. I I would say if I had one thing to maybe say that I see in common, it's just their willingness to try and learn and maybe experiment, and so they're just a little curious, and maybe we've built a, a, a good foundation of trust where they feel like they want to work with us, and so they opt to give it a try. And in some cases, they start small with maybe a half-acre infield prairie strip. For one particular landowner, he had a small erosion issue. He came to a field day he decided that he would try a 30-foot-wide infield prairie strip. Mm. So he did that, and he liked what he saw. So much so that he decided to do another infield prairie strip about 60 feet south of of the first one. Sometimes they start small, and then they keep going. So they're all different, I guess
0: so when you're going in i assume the land is in the history of the land varies that sometimes it was corn and beans sometimes maybe it was pasture uh maybe it was some rough ground i don't know but is what are the some of the biggest challenges to getting prairie established on farmland i mean it, it, like i said i'm sure it varies what the history of that land was but what, what are some of the biggest challenges that you run into
2: Well, in some ways, it's a little easier for us to plant prairie on a field that was previously cropped just because there aren't any weeds. So that's usually one of our biggest hurdles, and that's kind of taken care of. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, it's a lot easier for us to plant in a field. But as far as some of the challenges, once you actually have the prairie planted, I would say one of the first things that comes to mind would be the spraying. Because it's an in-field strip, you've got edges on both sides, and so that's going to be an issue with drift, and so depending on the direction of the wind, one of our landowners has told us that the operator has to come back, come back two different days based on wind, and so that is more of a hassle, and so that might deter some folks, mm. and that that plays a factor and in, in the landowner and operator relationship and getting buy in, and so you know that's a dynamic. Um, another, I I guess, a challenge might be. A lot of folks or individuals think prairie is prairie, that it's all kind of created equal. And we are planting, we're planting plantings that have 70 plus species. And so that is going to be a different community than a planting that has five to 10 species. And so they're not really created equal. And so kind of getting that education out and why, if you invest more upfront, why, why it will last longer. And it'll provide a larger amount of benefits for a whole array and not just education on the seed mix, but also just the proper site prep and the seeding methods. Do they wanna use a no till drill or a broadcast or drop seeder? And one simple thing when you if, if you are maybe working with a landowner operator who's used to planting corn and soybeans, the depth of the seed needs to be planted different. Hmm. So we're talking an eighth to a fourth or yeah, to a fourth inch de- deep that the seeds need to be planted, which is a lot, sh- you know, it's not as deep as the corn and soybeans. So just an education on um, proper things, because the the details really do matter and they do add up. And so that's kind of why we're here is to help with that process. Any amount that we can help plant is, is good.
0: Well, that's the question I was going to ask is, so we had millions of acres of prairie here at one time so that we're never going to get back to that but how much of a benefit is just getting a few acres here and there I mean is it sounds like it it can still it's not the what you would like to see from a pure ecological standpoint but it sounds like you can get some benefits from this stuff here and there.
2: Yeah I think for sure and like I mentioned before even a little bit can maybe lead to a larger amount maybe a neighbor sees it or maybe you yourself decide you want to do more so every little bit does help and and i think we're seeing the benefits of it one of our landowners he just was really intrigued with the species that were on his farmland he want he went out and bought i plant id books he wanted us to come out and point to each species he was very very excited about it in fact he even had his wife and son come and walk with us it just became really part he was he was proud of it and so he has gone on to share that with some of his neighbors they stop him at church or at a function and ask him about it and he's been given the opportunity to kind of preach and he's really proud of it and so that's what we want
0: more on the Tallgrass Prairie Center, see www.tallgrassprairiecenter.org. You may also be interested in a podcast we did back in 2013 on Iowa State University's research with prairie strips. It's episode 136. More information on how farmers can utilize perennial plants as part of a multifunctional, regenerative production system can be found on LSP's website at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org, or you can call 612-722-6377. By the way, it helps us greatly. You can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music, and a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members, who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, Visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.